Thanks for joining. I'm with Lonnie Limon from East Austin. And thanks, Lonnie, for joining. Thanks for having me. APC Chats. Really just want to get your story. Knowing who you are as a friend and as a colleague and former client, I just kind of wanted other people to hear about how you've come to be. And in a way that is community driven, but also has the corporate context, because I feel like there's a lot of community leaders and community activists or community members that only speak to one aspect of being involved. But I feel like the the engagement opportunity, especially for you and for people like you, is is both on the inside of institutions and then on the outside in the in the streets, kind of prodding that evolution and sparking that interest to engage. So, tell me about you. Uh. Well, um, first of all, I'm, I'm born and raised in the neighborhood that we're having this podcast in. So um, I grew up here in East Austin, um, and my family's been here for a really long time, in and around East Austin, uh, probably since the turn of the century. And um, so it, it, while I look at the, the area, it looks a lot like what I grew up with, but you know, there's not dogs walking themselves, or you know, <laughs> I don't recognize or chasing the, people. Yeah, I don't recognize the guys that would be dri- riding their bikes with a with a, a tall boy, you know, in, mm-hmm. a, in a in a bag, you know, that I could wave at, you know, that are friends of my family's. But um, but yeah, I, I grew up here, uh, and um, when I was 18, you know, kind of went out to explore the world, and and have lived in a few different cities. Um, you know, kind of traveled around. I met you in New York, mm-hmm. and I've had the pleasure of living in Chicago and uh, even lovely South Bend, Indiana, and, and Dallas, which is uh, where I live part-time now. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I grew up here in, in a community that was kind of, I, I don't know if I should say this, but it was kind of forgotten by the rest of the city at one point. So, you know, we had a dividing factor of the river was our southern dividing uh, line, and uh, I-35 was the westernmost dividing line, and then probably, depending on who you ask, it's from East Austin. Uh, probably Martin Luther King was the northernmost dividing line, and then 183. So anything that was inside of those confines was considered East Austin. And so I think you know, from a community perspective, you talked about just being involved in a community. Um, what some considered uh, a really bad place to be from, I always considered a little bit magical because. Um, we probably had the tightest knit community of any community in Austin, not partly because um, of certain geographic barriers, and I think a lot of it was also uh, psychographic barriers because you felt like this is where you belonged. People told you that's where you belonged, and then once you were here, you're like, well, it is where we belong, and we're going to own it. So, um, you know, there's a very strong demarcation between what was considered the black community or african-american community and what was considered the hispanic community and uh, you could almost divide it by like ninth or tenth street you know and um, literally one house on one street would be all hispanic and the next block would be all african-american and you knew where the professionals lived or you know you knew where and then the majority of the neighbors was working class so i got to see what it was like i think uh, to live in a place that was for me, special, but also was considered uh, maybe a little bit, um, I saw it maybe as a little bit as being an outsider in, a, in the city of Austin. So as people were talking about, oh, Austin is great, and Austin mm-hmm. is this, Austin is that, I had a different view of what Austin was because of my perspective. So talk to us about um, getting out. And not not in a way that is ugly, but just kind of moving to the next step and going to South Bend. And I think you have a good story about a mailman at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, um, you know, I don't think I ever really wanted to get out of East Austin. Mm-hmm. But being a kid from from East Austin and from Austin, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted... I, I'm not sure what it was inside of me that was this inherent want or desire to see what was out there. And it's almost like, what's behind the curtain? I wanted to see mm-hmm. what was out in that in the world and we didn't have the internet so it wasn't like i was you know going on and looking at all these places and searching for cool places um what i had was encyclopedias you know i could go on and read about places and and probably the place that i was most um, enthralled with was new york city i always said i'm going to be a stockbroker and i'm going to go live in new york and i didn't really know what that meant i just knew that it meant success Mm -hmm. and so um when i started looking at colleges and where to apply uh where to apply to. I said, well, maybe I'll look at some schools in Texas. And I did. I looked at some really good schools here. And, and I said, let me look at some schools outside of Texas. And 
Um, and I chose as one of my schools uh, to apply was Notre Dame. And I didn't know really where it was. I didn't know where Indiana was. I didn't know where South Bend was within Indiana. I didn't even know it was near Chicago. I thought Chicago was in the East Coast. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Might as well be. Yeah, that's how naive I was, you <laughs> yeah. know. But um, the, the mailman story is kind of funny because um, I, I received all my letters of acceptance from different schools, and I was really excited because I knew I was at least going to have a, an opportunity to go to, mm-hmm. to, to a university. Uh, so I, I knew I was accepted to a few places, but the one I wanted was Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And so I waited and waited and waited, and um, I remember I would go out every day to go wait for the mailman to get there. And the day that um, I, I was accepted, uh, the mailman pulled up, and I see him, and I just run out there. I mean, I had, like, just shorts on, and I run out there, and he looks at me, and he's like, uh, hey, what's going on? I said, do you, do you have any letters for Lonnie Limon? He said, uh, hold on. And he's, I mean, it's like literally like days. He's going <laughs> one, two, no, Bill, Bill, Diana Limon, Virgil Limon, Bill, Bill. Mm-hmm. They're all bills for, you know, my family. And then all of a sudden he's like, I do have something here. It's from uh, Notre Dame. And I'm like, oh, man. I was like, is it thick or is it thin? Yeah, he's like, it's not, he's like uh, I'm not really sure here. And he hands it to me and I look at it. And I probably looked at it for like five minutes and asked him if he would stay. And he's oh. like, what? I said, just stay here so just because just, just, oh. nobody's here. My mom and dad were working. You know, my brother was a kid, and I think he might have been at the babysitter. So I was just there by myself. So he stayed with me, and I said, just stay with me in case, you know, I don't know, in case I don't get in, you mm-hmm. know, I just need somebody to be here with me. So I opened it up really slowly, and I kind of just peeked in, and I pulled out the letter, and it was, I think it was just a two-page letter, I think. And um, so it didn't feel thick, mm-hmm. which kind of worried me. And as I started reading, you know, I... Uh, said you know um, it, it starts out really nice it's like mm-hmm. you know we're, we're happy to inform you that you've been accepted to the University of Notre Dame and I just I like started screaming and I gave him a big hug and he had no idea what I was doing you know but but he hugged me back and he's mm-hmm. like oh man he goes what happened <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like I got into yeah. college man yeah. I got into college and he's like where I said like, Notre Dame and then he started he started really getting you know kind of excited because yeah. Um, you know, he knew where I, he, he, he was, his route was my neighborhood. He knew yeah. where I came from. And, um, so anyway, that was, that was a defining moment for me to explore outside of my own boundaries and see what else was out in, for me, what was out in the world. Yeah. So. And in doing that, where did you land after Notre Dame? Um, after Notre Dame, you know, what's interesting is that, uh, I've always had a very keen interest in helping out my community in mm-hmm. Austin. I wasn't sure what that meant. You know, do you do you speak up at a at a forum where there's an issue going on in your neighborhood, or mm-hmm. do you join a board, or do you just get a good job? I mean, I wasn't sure what does community involvement look like, right? Uh, how do I give back? And um, I decided to move back to Austin because I knew I wanted to be a part of the community. I didn't know how, like what role I would play, but I said I'd want to at least be in my community and a part of my community and not. You know, run off and live in another Forget city about it. at that point. So I came back, and and I'll be honest, the the rude awakening that I got was there were limited jobs in Austin at the time. Mm-hmm. This was in 1996, and um, and so I I placed a few phone calls, and I was lucky enough to be able to get a job working for the Texas Lottery at that time. That. Yeah, yeah, and I was an intern. I mean, here mm-hmm. I, you know, I had a, a degree from a great school, but I was an intern because that's what was available at the time. And it was a paid internship, but I mean, I thought I was making a ton of money. I was probably making $1,000 a month, maybe if I was mm-hmm. lucky. And, um, but I was happy, it was, it was money. So uh, my student loans hadn't kicked in just yet. So, so you could be happy. So I could be happy for a minute, you know, for a minute. Until Notre Dame Yeah, yeah until Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And I knew those loans would start kicking in right away. So anyway, I took that job, and um, just a funny side story, while I was there, the guy at the time, the lottery drawings were done on TV, and um, you know people would t- tune in every night to watch the guy draw the balls. So you were to the see guy drawing the balls. Well, there was another guy. He was from El Paso, actually, and his name was Oscar. And Oscar became my friend, and you know we'd run into each other in the hall. And he's like, "Hey, Limon." He's like, um, "I'm moving back to El Paso with my wife." And um, sounds like an El Paso one. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, I'm <laughs> "My wife back. needs to be back with her family." I gotta yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. So he decided he was going to move back, and he's like, I think you should apply for my position. I said, you want me to draw the balls? He's like, yes. He's like, actually, it's a security drawing specialist. And so um, 
Long story short, <laughs> long story short, I drew the balls. It's <laughs> a baller. Yeah, I was a baller. <laughs> I was a baller. Uh, when did the twenty-inch blades come in, Lonnie? Tell us. Well, you know, they they didn't, but I I will tell you, I I probably uh, the 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 funnest moment of my career, short-lived career at the lottery, was my first drawing, and um, you know, I remember we you have to do this whole thing where you you actually clean the balls and then you actually have to run them to the machine 25 mm-hmm. times or however many times so that probability wise you know you can see make sure that the same balls are no coming advantage. up yeah. Oh, wow. yeah and then you know you have to document it etc cetera, etc cetera. anyway um, hopefully i'm not saying anything that's proprietary to the lot but uh, <laughs> but um, the first drawing we did the drawing and then we have like ex uh, law enforcement individuals that would work with us and what they would do is as soon as we did the numbers, they could tell by connecting to the computer systems if there was a winning ticket. Well, or if there were multiple winning tickets, mm-hmm. which happens sometimes. They determined that there was one winning ticket in this small town in Texas. And we're like, wow. And it was the largest drawing at that time in Texas of $50 million. Where okay. was it? What town? Um, I can't remember the exact name. But this guy calls me, Frank, and he said, hey, man. He goes, we got one ticket. I'm traveling out there in the morning to go. They have to go and basically verify that the ticket exists. Um, they go to the store. They pull camera footage. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do, do all kinds of stuff. Um, and then they make sure you don't know child support. So uh, they'll literally wow. take your money away if you child support, things like that. So anyway, um, he calls me up. and He's like, Limon, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He goes, we don't have one winner. I said, what? Is there two winners? And that's $50 million. I said, that's 25 apiece. He said, no, we have 50 winners. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Or it was, it was either 50 or 48. But um, it was a farming community that, that had uh, done really bad during the crop season because of some of the weather issues. And that farming community pulled together and bought whatever, let's just say 100 tickets, right? You know, they put in... You I've know, done that two before. bucks a piece, right? Yeah, everybody does the pools, right? I needed a community, though. I did it by myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was feeling super entitled and very lucky, but no. Yeah, well, these guys put yeah. in, I think, um, whatever. They bought $100 worth of tickets, and one of their tickets hit. So these farmers who were struggling overnight became instant millionaires. Wow. And we created 48 or whatever it was millionaires overnight in a community that was struggling. So that's when I realized, I'm like, oh, this is not that bad, you mm-hmm. know? And... Um, they ended up running our show with, I think, with Dan Rather on Forty Eight Hours, talking about those forty eight farmers that became millionaires. That's awesome. So that was cool. That was a highlight of it. Um, and then from there, you know, I decided that that uh, that probably wasn't a career. It was a fun. It's a fun thing to talk about on a mm-hmm. podcast, but it wasn't a career. <laughs> um, I worked for Bank of America for like a minute, um, trying to figure out if if banking was my thing. And truthfully, I thought. I was doing banking, but what I was really doing was um, I was helping uh, the bank to find money to lend in what they called um, formerly redlined areas. Mm-hmm. So they have something called the Community Reinvestment Act, mm-hmm. and they try to make sure that the banks are lending money to people that that wouldn't normally get loans in these areas, like where I live in East Austin. Mm-hmm. And what I found at the time was that, like, okay, you know, it was a lo- it was a lot of hustle. You had to be out. Looking for a person that lived in this area that happened to have 700, you know, score mm-hmm. credit. And it was hard. So I was like, okay, this is not for me. And then I thought, okay, I got these jobs, but what's going to be my career? Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what that was going to be. So um, I looked into moving to San Francisco because I had a cousin that lived there and he was a stockbroker, which was my dream. Mm-hmm. And he's like, come out here. You can see if you want to live out here and I'll potentially look at putting you to be a stock trader with me it always takes one cousin and it's what it was and it was it was like one of the successful ones you know he's like (laughs) i got you man so uh, i go he lives in this beautiful apartment in pacific heights oh wow go and stay with him and i'm like i want to be this guy when i go yeah pack heights i want to be that guy exactly i mean you know we get in his fancy bmw and we're Mm -hmm. at four in the morning or three in the morning and we're driving down the streets of san francisco to go basically start his day at i think 3.30 3.30 or 4, because in Eastern time, York, they were yeah. three hours ahead. So I thought, wow, I want to live this life. I'm going to come move here. This is it. And um, we, you know, I fell in love with the city. I'm like, I'm moving here. I'm going to be a stock trader with my cousin. And then um, 
And then he tells me how much his rent is. <laughs> and he's like, you can stay with me for like two months. But then after that, you got to find your own place. I'm like, who's going to help me pay for this? You know? <laughs> I don't so, have another cousin. <laughs> I don't have another cousin here, you know? So, um, so that kind of scared me away uh, from San Francisco. So then I said, okay, let me look at um, Chicago. The, the, most, uh, the most number of Notre Dame grads live in Chicago, mm-hmm. obviously because it's close to South Bend. And I just thought, if I'm going to go look for a job, it's got to be with people that are part of my alumni group. Mm-hmm. So I called my best friend, and he said, I said, I think I'm going to move, move to Chicago. Uh, Gabe. Okay. Gabe. Uh, and I said, Gabe, I, said, I think I'm going to move to Chicago. Doesn't your girlfriend live there, Monica? He's like, she does. And she lives out in Gurney, which is like near Wisconsin. And she's like, you can come live with me. So uh, I stayed with her in Gurney for like three months as I looked for a job. Mm-hmm. I, more happenstance than anything else, I tempt with a, a company that happened to provide um, temporary services to ad agencies. And so I was working with DDB Needham. I was working with... Um, uh, Leo Burnett I was working with Meredith Publishing uh, ad agencies and media companies mm-hmm. and but I was their admin it was like hey can you dictate this for me or you know can you go yeah. get me coffee you know and I did it because I just needed a job um, and about three months in a good friend of mine who's also from El Paso see uh, Veronica she Ver- you know, she knows Veronica oh you know Veronica okay so yeah. I went to visit her um, her building was next door to work my, my temp office Veronica Payan yeah, yeah. You, you, maybe you know if you see her, but I went over to her building and in true Eastside style, I was like, excuse me, it's a Veronica Payam work here. Can I see her, please? <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah she, was, she was the one that said, you should think about getting into advertising and getting into um, media. She said, I think we'd, you'd be perfect for this type of business. She's like, I've seen you on TV handling the <laughs> yeah, balls. Yeah, I yeah, know you can do yeah. it. <laughs> I know you. I know. I know you make people millionaires overnight. So come here. Yeah, you know? yeah. Be a brand guy. That's right. Be a brand guy. So, um, so that was my that was my entry into advertising. I went through seven interviews, um, and seven rounds later, and probably weeks later, actually maybe even a month later, I was offered a job with Leo Burnett and uh, started in media, and that's how I got into kind of this business, and it took me to other cities even so uh and that's how i've traveled around to new york and you know uh dallas through through this industry so you started with leo and when did you start kind of focusing on multicultural uh marketing um well when i worked with leo burnett um it subsequently became well the portion that i was working for the media department became starcom starcom media launched in 97 Wow. And I was with them as a media manager, and they said, listen, I remember getting this call, and they said, hey, we need you. And I was doing general market and international. And um, I started working on the Miller Lite business, and I remember getting called into my boss's office. And uh, it was I had a, a female and a male boss that worked closely together, and they said, hey, come in. They said, we want you to go down to uh, Texas uh, because we have a need down there for Miller Lite. Miller Lite is complaining that we don't have anyone that understands um, their audience. Their audience. They need to be understand Texas like the back of their hand, and, they, and frankly, they have to be Hispanic because that's such a big portion of our of our consumer base. And I'm like, yeah, let me know. I'll help you find that person. You know, let me know. And they're like, you're him. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. I was like 24, maybe I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whatever I was, and and I was like, well, I just left Texas. I don't want to go back. I like Chicago. And, um, and again, I was trying to explore and, you know, see new things. And I, I learned from a corporate perspective at that time is that sometimes you have to take one for the team. Yeah, you do what you need to do mm-hmm. to keep your job. Yep. And so I did. I took that job and moved down to Dallas with Leo Burnett. While I was there, literally months into my job, um, a friend of mine, a Notre Dame graduate who was a friend, good friend, Laura Puente, called me up. She was uh, working for Kraft in Chicago and she said listen my agency is this agency called Dieste down in Dallas um, there's a guy that's running it he's a young guy he you know born and raised in Mexico City but like very dynamic you need to know him and he needs to know you because down the line you guys will interact and I said eh. I said, I'm pretty happy at Leo Burnett she goes no it's not for a job you just need to meet this guy he's really dynamic and I said well what are they called he goes she said Dieste I said never heard of them she's like you need to hear them. They've only been around three or four years, but they will be big. I said, okay. 
So um, I reached out to them, and they said, well, why don't you come in at, you know, whatever, 2 o'clock in the afternoon? I said, no, no, no. I have a job. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I don't jeopardize my job. I can be there at 6 o'clock. And they're like, well. It's a responsible money. Yeah, I was, uh, that was my responsible years, you know. I was a Catholic boy. Yeah, Catholic boy, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay. I show up at 6 o'clock. I walk into this dark, huge conference room, and I'm sitting there for probably 15 minutes before uh, this young guy walks in. His name is Roberto Suchinski. And he was like, hey, uh, you must be Lonnie. I'm like, sure. And I'm like, I'm supposed to meet Tony DSJ. He's like, yeah, they'll be here shortly. So um, where do you shop? Where do you get groceries? I'm like, excuse me? You're at a focus group? Yeah, I'm like, I'm in a focus group. I mean, I shop at HEB. I shop at... Depending on what I need, you know. Yeah. Actually, wait a minute. I don't even shop for groceries, uh, but that's where I would go if I did. <laughs> so we start talking. That's where my mom. Yeah, that's where my mom would go. You know, <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's kind of a weird question. So we start talking. Then this guy Warren Harmel walks in, and he's like, "This is Warren. He's he's part owner of the company, and he has this like what I thought was a British accent. It was actually a South African accent. And yeah, he's like, oh hey, little, yeah. it was a little similar for me, yeah, you know, yeah. for me. And he's like, hey Lonnie, I'm Warren Harmel. How are you? And I'm like, hey, uh, how are you, sir? I was like. This guy does Hispanic marketing? I'm like, okay. Um, and so then I'm like, so he starts asking me, so Lonnie, what, do you drink soft drinks? And I'm like, <laughs> look, I know I need to lose a little weight, but yes, yeah, I mean, really good voices. I do drink soft he drinks. He has a voice know? for me, he has a voice for anyone he's ever met. Yes, I can do Audrey's voice. Yeah. Not on this podcast, but yes. <laughs> um, So I'm like, these are some strange questions. Then comes in Tony Diesta, and he's the consummate, like, light the room up guy. Right, he you walks know, I've never in. Met him. I've never even seen him. You need to because, yeah. and I'll introduce you guys. He's mm-hmm. he's just one of these people. He walks in and he says, uh, he says, uh, "Hey, Lonnie, Tony Diesta, how are you?" I said, "Hey, Tony, I'm I'm Lonnie. Nice to meet you." He's like, "Listen, uh, I'm glad you had a chance to meet with Warren and, and with Roberto. Let me just cut to the chase, Lonnie. We want you to uh, be part of this team." I said, no, I told Laura, Tony, already, before I could finish my sentence that I told Laura that I wasn't looking for a job, he said, let me, let me tell you what we're doing and how we're going to just change the landscape of America. You're Hispanic, right? I said, yes, I'm, you know, second generation, third generation, born and raised in Austin. He's like, you're the kind of people we need to do the work that we're doing, to reach people like you, not just in Spanish, but in English. And then he just started basically evangelizing what the U.S. Hispanic market was and how we would talk to them I never thought about this because I was talking to the general market or and if I was doing any Hispanic marketing at the time it was in Spanish mm-hmm. but he was somebody that was telling me you can talk to people like you that speak English but that are culturally Hispanic and grew up here in the United States Which and I thought pretty progressive at the time at that time it was very progressive yeah. And I, thought, I mean, it's even progressive now. Let's not yeah, lie. It is. <laughs> People are still trying to figure that it's true. out. Yeah. For many clients, it's yeah. still very progressive. At that time, I just, I just felt like he was speaking to my soul. He was speaking yeah. to like me. And I thought, okay, you got my attention. Yeah. And as we kept going, probably, I don't know, um, after about an hour and a half long conversation with them three, um, Tony says, can you excuse us for a minute? I'm like, sure. Oh, no. They did ask me this question again. He said, hey, so what? If you were going to buy um, groceries in Austin, where would you go shopping? And I'm like, what's with the grocery question? <laughs> like, I don't shop. For-. And I said, well, you know what? Look, I'm just going to tell you. My family shops at HEB. Now, other people might shop at Albertsons and other places, but we're Hispanic. We shop at HEB. And he's like, okay, okay. What if you lived in Houston? Where would you shop? And I was like, Fiesta. well, I would probably go to Fiesta because Fiesta has the same types of things that HEB has, but it's a little more... It's less acculturated, mm-hmm. but that's perfect for Houston. And he's like, he looks at Warren, and he's like, good. And I'm like, what's with the grocery questions? You know? so, <laughs> like, am so, I going to have to grocery shop yeah. for you guys? I'm like, what kind of snacks do you this like? This is the strangest conversation <laughs> I've ever had, right? Well, um, he leaves, and Warren leaves, and then Roberto leaves after them. And I think, am I excused? Nobody's told me I can leave, but I think I'm going to leave. As I'm getting up, and I said, man, they, weren't, they, they didn't even say goodbye. I'm walking out, and um, this, this lady comes to me and says, uh, excuse me, my name's Susan Sexton. Um, you must be Lonnie. I said, yes. I said, you're not going to ask me where I shop for groceries, are you? <laughs> and she's like, no. She said, um, can you just stay for a minute? I said, sure. Do you want me to just stay in the room? She says, sure. I go back in, and she's like, I don't know who you are, but you must have really made an impression on Tony and Warren. Uh, because they want to offer you a job. And I said, no, 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 I'm not looking for a job. I'm not looking for a job. She goes, hang tight, buddy. I'll be right back. She goes, 
gone for like 15, 20 minutes, comes back, and she's like, um, I've already got an offer letter for you. I said, no, 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 ma'am, 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 I'm good. I, I'm, I'm really happy at Leo Burnett. She puts the offer in front of me, and I look at the number, and I'm like, wait a minute, where are Tony and Warren again? Can I talk to them for a little bit longer? You know, and I have some questions. You've got my interest. And, um, you know, they, I learned at that point that if they really wanted someone that they felt was a good fit for a team and that understood the market that they were going after, that, uh, you know, they were willing to really kind of go to bat for you. And um, so I took the job. And after how many years? You, you went back this year, right? Uh, I started at DSD in 1999. Mm-hmm. And here we are in 2017. And I went back in January of 2017. With another offer letter at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 uh, not many things have changed. But the, yeah, the company has changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. And the clients have changed dramatically. And, um, but what hasn't changed is... Uh, not just Tony now. It, Warren is no longer uh, with the company, but Tony is, and you have Greg Knip there, mm-hmm. and you have a lot of other people that I respect. Greg is a CEO, and uh, you know when I got to hear Greg's vision for what they're trying to do with AT and T uh, and and with other clients that, that they subsequently work on, um, and when I heard Tony talk about what he wanted me to bring to the table for the agency, not just for a yeah. client, um, I thought that's right up my alley. So yeah, many so- years later. Full circle. Any any highlights in between? Yeah, I mean, uh, some some good highlights for me. Some learnings. Um, I think every person that, as they go through their trajectory in their career, uh, they should try to make as many mistakes as possible. I made them. Uh, There were jobs that I took for five months or for a year, and I wanted to kick myself in the butt because I thought that's not going to look good on a resume. Mm -hmm. What I always try to walk away with though was, what did I learn? Yeah. So uh, I worked on the McDonald's business for a very short time, probably uh, a little less than three years. It was in New York. It was in New York. But I made lifelong friendships with many of these McDonald's uh, operators. And not only that, with the agency I worked with. And those relationships have followed me, and I've stayed connected with those uh, individuals. And, you know, there's just, there's just, if you can take away the good from some of those yeah. um, bad decisions. You're welcome. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. We met in New York. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I met Audrey in New York. <laughs> yeah. I met Audrey. Um, and, you know, and, and, and when Audrey and I last worked together, when you and I last worked together, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had the pleasure of, of being in a management role where I was the president of Inspire, and um, I wasn't sure that I was ready for that role. Yeah. Um, but looking back, after doing it for a little under three years, I learned that um, you're never ready, but it's what you take away, and it's what you learn while you're there. Mm-hmm. And um, I do feel that there was some some great like you said uh, are there any flashing flashing moments or whatever mm-hmm. during that time period that was definitely one of them I, I learned that I loved what I was doing mm-hmm. but if but I also wanted to be in a more creative role yeah. creative problem solver and, and leadership doesn't always offer that doesn't always offer that not to say that I don't want to continue to be a leader but mm-hmm. um, that's one thing that I have uh, gained back in this new position I'll rephrase management doesn't yeah, manage- always, yeah, <laughs> yeah, doesn't always yeah, offer management that. not yeah. leadership correct yeah. correct but so yeah, those are some highlights. I mean, there's some others in between, but um, I've really enjoyed. I, I took a sabbatical for a, year, a little over a year, year and a half, and um, I just did nothing. Hung out with my dad and my family, mm-hmm. and advertising. And you know this, and in marketing, you just you find sometimes that there's no balance. So I looked a for, lot of times, a lot of times, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. a lot Pretty of weekends, all the time. <laughs> yeah, a lot of weekends and holidays yeah. Yeah. and nights. But uh, I took some time to hang out with my family and sat on tractors and picked up cows with my dad. I mean, did all kinds of random stuff. But what I realized is that I still do love the hustle of advertising. Yeah. And it's not just the hustle, but I like... I, you mentioned something earlier. It's like, if we're... If not us, and to he, figure out oh, yeah, a great way to talk to the Hispanic market or a way to engage them or to inspire them, then who? Well, and I also feel like... Um, so much about the corporate world or just the business world, like the, the color green doesn't really see disparity in that way it's like they're going to talk to everybody right they're sometimes the first people to engage an audience regardless of color because it's an opportunity to make money Mm -hmm. and so if you can change the landscape of who gets talked to mindfully or how they get engaged that i think that's kind of where it starts right because if you can build an appetite from corporate america then corporate america sees that this is a viable community a viable consumer segment then what does media do and putting more of those faces on television or what does you know the industry do and identifying more people that are needed in corporate america so maybe i've added 
angles or twists or connected dots that don't exist, but I find it meaningful. Yeah. And and I think, I mean, it's part of what we do is gaining the trust of senior clients to explain to them. I mean, we can throw numbers in front of them all day long. There are some clients that you can say 90% of your customers are potentially Hispanic and they'll go, great, let's go do an ad with Bob Odenkirk. And I'm like, okay, we could do that. And it might work because, especially because he was on Colesol, you know. But, <laughs> but, but why not look instead at this person, yeah. right, Michael Pena, or why not look at so and so? And it's because they're so used to doing things the way they've been used to doing them, right? So it's not just showing them numbers or saying, "Hey, this makes sense for your business," but it's it's almost taking a lot more risks mm-hmm. and saying, "You know what? Let us try this one thing." And if I can show you that that brings major returns then let me try another thing. And actually, let me try another piece of your business where we might do something really interesting. And all of a sudden, they start going, wow, this, those numbers really are real. Well, yeah. of course they're real. But now you're just allowing us to... Um, do what we know we can do. Yeah. I mean, that's what they pay us for, for leadership and for brand leadership uh, and, frankly, to, to increase sales, engagements, you name it, right? And um, Is there an advocacy to it? I feel like, you know, I've been at at tables or discussions or conference calls, even here in Austin back in the Latin works days and a client said, we're trying to talk about a campaign that we were doing for a spirit brand. And we wanted to highlight people who've achieved. You can guess the brand. I yeah, won't yeah. say it, but the client, um, at some point said, well, you know, I said, I want to show doctors and lawyers and people who have done things. And, and the client, God love her. She was not from this country, but she's like, well, Mexicans aren't doctors. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> All the girls I went to school with, their dads are doctors. Like the the men that I know are doctors. So I feel like, not that I've added an advocacy bent to it, but I feel like just by default, because you're representing communities or voices that don't necessarily get represented in some of those discussions or boardrooms. To me, there's a there's a weight that comes with the role and responsibility that we carry, being the only representative from a client. Well, I will tell you this, and I've had this conversation, and uh, I'm not afraid to use his name, uh, Ernesto Nieto from the National Hispanic Institute. You know, I'm I'm fortunate enough to sit on their board, and uh, so that gives me a lot more opportunity to talk mm-hmm. to him. And um, we talk about these types of issues every day. Where does the advocacy come from? And he talks about something called uh, CSC. I think it's Community Social Empowerment, I believe. And and I couldn't give you all the specifics of it, but what's interesting is that you know, in today's generation, a younger generation might say, "Well, I don't really see." color i don't see gender differences like it's like kumbaya we just all get together Mm -hmm. and get along and i think some of the what you need in terms of advocacy is not necessarily to be like only us or look at me it's more like hey have we looked at things from this lens right and that's where to me that's where the advocacy comes from are we at least bringing that perspective to the table so that um sometimes it's easier to get along and it's easier to say well hey you know what it's just kind of, I mean, if everybody likes me and just we belong, yeah. just go with it. Don't be that person. But that may not be the best business decision. And frankly, mm-hmm. um, I've always been told, somebody told me this one time, and I believe it, everybody's story deserves to be heard or told. And right now, that's not happening. Some brands are telling story, the stories of different groups. Mm-hmm. And some are like, no, let's just tell the broad story of Americans. Well, Americans is made up of all these different things, right? So... Um, I do think there's a level of advocacy that we people like you or myself or your sister have to bring to the table. And if we don't, again, if not us, then who? Yeah. Are we going to wait for the next generation to do it? I just think that, I mean, and there's, just, there's a way to do it, I think. And that's the part that everybody is afraid to take a risk on. I also feel like it's, um, it's a generational thing, and we've talked about this, and that if my father's very civically minded and very passionate and a lot of energy and a lot of... Um, emotion to just about everything he does or sees or reads or reacts to and we've even had discussions and sometimes seated discussions i'm like dad you know where you have to be an advocate or where you had to be an advocate i get to be an ambassador so my way is going to look different you know my tone my approach it's going to be different and even then i may hurt people's feelings or i may say something that doesn't necessarily reflect the total truth from another person's perspective but like i don't have the the history or the anger, I have the context and the respect, but I, it's not as heavy for me. And I feel like even for the younger generations, and you know, my nephews, my colleagues that are younger, um, 
they look at it entirely differently and they don't want to be singled out for being this or that. Um, and I'll let the world show them because eventually I think sometimes they will get singled out. I don't want to show them that or close doors or give them my stuff because I saw things differently or because I've been exposed to different things. But I, I feel like for each generation, it gets a little less heavy. I'm hoping. I think it, I, I used to think the same thing. I thought until, for each gener- until, <laughs> until, until, until this we November. Elected, until we, yeah, <laughs> until this past November when we yeah. elected you know, Trump. And I thought, Wow. And, you know, I'm, I'm a very open-minded person. I always try to say, well, I wonder why the people that mm-hmm. voted for him, why they elected him. I, I can tell you I didn't vote for him, but the people that elected him, why? And I always try to put myself in other people's shoes to understand why they feel a certain way. And I think while I, I just continue to believe that we should advocate for, for our community, because, mm-hmm. again, if we don't, no one else will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that as we look at the changing dynamics of the country, there are more multiracial marriages, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a lot of great things happening, right? There's more openness to people that are not like you, mm-hmm. not like me, you know, that that in the past would have been considered maybe socially unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And now there's a, a much more openness in a younger generation to look at uh, those individuals as just that, individuals, they're people. Mm-hmm. And, but... Um, I still feel like somebody needs to continue to advocate for these subgroups, if you want to call them that, you know, for Hispanics, for specifically for, if you want to say Mexican-Americans or, you know, for Colombian-Americans, et cetera. Uh, Opasoans are their own little breed. <laughs> and we're all yeah. fine, thanks. They're their own little breed, yeah. yes. I, I love Opasoans. <laughs> but yes, you guys are like a tribe yeah. um, all over Someone, the world. Someone, Manny Reese calls us the Cubans of Texas. Yes, yes. <laughs> you guys are like a tribe for sure. <laughs> yeah. Very tight-knit. Um no, I love El Paso ones, but um, I, I just feel like uh, the one thing that we can't ignore is that I feel like the, probably the reason your dad and people like your dad and my family or even Ernesto Nieto, the reason they advocated so heavily for the community because they had to. Yeah. It wasn't, I want to, I no, have those to. Were the, those were the fights. Yeah. Those there, were, yeah. there were issues that they had to advocate for and against, right? And, and they're still doing it. They're, they're still, still doing it. And yeah. they're still doing and it. And there's still a know, need to do it. Yes. They know the reality. Yeah. I don't think that our generation, there wasn't as much of a need. There was some. And then the newer generation is like, well, we're good. Yeah. We don't have to advocate for anything. What are you talking about? I can sit at the front of the bus. And, and, until, <laughs> until Trump so, says, yes. oh, by the way, your mom cannot come into yeah. this country no, I know. because she's a Muslim, right? Yeah. And so it's a rude awakening. And, and whether it's that issue, whether it's something else, they will have to find that thing that will inspire them to advocate for their own community because it's important. It's still very important. Well, I think it's funny because, you know, maybe like five years ago at my old firm, I was like, my team just doesn't want to do this. Like, we're capable of this and that. So how do we start diffusing these insights into every department? And it's not that I was ashamed for where I've come from or how I got tapped to, you know, lead diversity initiatives or multicultural initiatives. It was just I wanted to make sure they got exposed and not ghettoized into what could be only this, only these conversations that you get to partake in. Because I felt like it was limiting their exposure and their access, not just to bigger budgets, but to bigger assignments and bigger opportunities. And now more than ever, and I'm barely getting to this point, I'm like, no, we are a multicultural agency. And I, I didn't want to just be that because I fought for a long time to make sure my team had access to do other oppor- you know, other assignments. But now I'm like, it's still needed. It's still needed. It's still important. It's still a huge part of what we get asked to do. We still help launch tech startups. We still help identify, you know, very finite communities for IoT companies and for ed tech companies. But in general, I think the bread and butter that I'm, I'm most proud of is the work we do in multicultural. And that's a shift. Yeah. And I've always been proud of it, but I, I wanted to expose them to more. And I find that they are lobbying for more of the multicultural work than just the, talk, the tech um, startup. So it's interesting because it's been a shift. And I think because of the climate, we're kind of embracing it a lot more. Yeah, I, and I, I, I agree with you. And I think um, one prime example I have of, of uh, the one piece that I left out actually was that while you advocate or you, for your own community, you also have to continue to build bridges to other communities mm-hmm. so that you learn and take from other communities things that, that you enjoy or things that might be important to you, right? Um, one of the things I learned, and it's very um, relevant to right now, is being during South by Southwest, mm-hmm. right? Um, I used to do some some uh, 
some work with South by Southwest as a volunteer. And one of the things that um, I used to hear was like, well, hey, you know, we would say, well, why don't we do this? So if you're coming to South by Southwest and you're Hispanic, let's put you here. And one of the things that we would hear from participants, um, they would say, hey, you know what? I don't just want to be with other Colombians yeah. or other Mexicans or other Hispanics. I actually came here to learn about uh, virtual reality. Yeah. So I want to be around other virtual reality enthusiasts, right? Yeah. So what we said was, okay. And rather than putting them in a bucket, because nobody wants to be put into this no, kind of like at all. Know, this little bucket, we said, we will, if they self-identify and if they say, we want to learn more about the music industry in Colombia or in Spain or in L.A., mm-hmm then we will build that for them. And we will invite them and say, hey, it's here. You know, you can come up meet other people. But we didn't just invite Hispanics. We invited everyone, yeah. right? But the specialty was around what mm-hmm. we knew. And then, frankly, the rest of the time, I mean, they might want to go see what was going on with virtual reality. They might want to go see what was going on with relation to, you know, branded sponsorships or whatever, right? Um, or par- branded partnerships. So we, we allowed them to kind of live fluidly between their interests and then things that might be more relevant to either where they were from or culturally mm-hmm. where they were from. And it kind of worked, you know. So you can live in two worlds, but you have to allow them to choose kind when they go between. Yeah, they self-select. Well, and, and that's it, right? Giving giving people the opportunity to self-select, but mm-hmm. to have options for which they can choose. Yeah. And not just saying it's only going to be that. And yeah. that's going to be your exposure or access. Well, and that's what happened to you and me, right? Yeah. We only got chosen to work in the multicultural or Hispanic divisions of our companies. And... Uh, frankly, I think we brought so many assets that we should have been that plus, yeah. you know, so many other things. Just the way today's youth are able to self-select. Mm-hmm. And this plus, these yeah. other things. And now we get to do that in our own special way. What yeah. are you doing next as it relates to community engagement? Well, um, you know, since I've moved back to Austin, mm-hmm. I live in Austin the majority of the week and then par- partially in Dallas. But um, I really started to reinsert myself into areas that I might provide the most um, the most help you know so uh, I just I just joined a, the citizens bond advisory committee um, it's not specific to anything Hispanic it is specific to uh, certain precincts so I live in precinct four which is a heavily Hispanic working class area um, and it's not all Hispanic it's, it's just working class but heavily Hispanic as well and uh, and rural so you know one of the reasons I joined was so that I could learn what's important to people in, in that area and, um, and and be a voice. You know, be a voice because I looked at some of the bios of some of the other people that are sitting on this advisory committee and they're all really nice. But you're talking about I have a master's in public uh, public affairs or whatever it is, public administration from LBJ. Or uh, they've got, you know, doctorates from Harvard. And not, I don't put myself in the same class with them. What I do think is like, it can be a very intimidating thing to sit with them and talk about why we should have a bridge so that a road doesn't flood mm-hmm. in this rural part of Austin where, you know, people, um, you know, are, are new to this country or uh, maybe it's historically um, underdeveloped or maybe even a, 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 a little bit poor community. So I'm hoping to use the things that I've learned in corporate America and in my job to be a voice for for my community, because this is where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've done that, Citizens Bond Advisory Committee. I've gotten involved in a couple of local campaigns to help friends and, and other people that are not friends, but people that I believe in, that I know are also going to do good things for the community. And generally just wanting to be a part of where Austin's going in terms of its growth. I mean, my family's been here for over 120 years, and I think if we don't, if we're not a part of the growth, then we're just watching it from happens the sidelines. To us. Yeah. And I think, you know, not. Not to say that we're going to have any say in, uh, in terms of, you know, changing this or changing that. You're just knowledgeable, so you can go back to your base. And my base is my family. Mm-hmm. I can go back and say, hey, did you know that they're going to do this with the convention center? And here's what it means to you, from a good or a bad standpoint. Yeah. It's how they interpret it is up to them, but at least I'm able to filter Help information inform. for them. And right now, I mean. Pretty much if you want to know something, you're reading the newspaper and you're getting a very biased opinion sometimes. So I want to be able to give them an opinion as a community member. So that's those are some of the things I'm getting involved with. And I'm all obviously involved in uh, the Neighborhood Association. And I do that because, I mean, that's like the most local I can go. It's like mm-hmm. where I'm from. I mean, 
when they talk about like, oh, that little store over there. I'm like, yeah, that, that that's Raquel's store. I know them. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> leave it alone. <laughs> leave it alone. Don't 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 put a quickie piggy there. I like quickie piggy, but don't put one there. Hey, those guys are nice. <laughs> I know, no, no, no. I, <laughs> yeah. But but I mean, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want we've taco, got enough quickie piggies. I want tacos that have real tortillas. Yeah, exactly. Um, with and you are very vocal. You're very vocal in your community. You're very vocal within your family. You are very social when it comes to issues and kind of raising awareness in the ways that you can. What is social media done in terms of enabling us to advocate or lobby within our circles? Well, you know, it's, it, that's an interesting question. I'll give you an example of, of how I've used it. But um, social media has become our own media network, right? And mm-hmm. that's what it is, it's social media, right? Mm-hmm. But every person can become a brand. And people know that, like, oh, that person only posts stuff about their kids. That person only posts stuff about cars. Um, I try to use my social media as much as I can um, in a way that people will want to see something when mm-hmm. I post it. Whether it's, I, I like to post photographs because mm-hmm. I like photographs yeah. as a hobby. But um, if I'm going to post anything about politics or anything about a community issue, I like to make sure that it, it, it is resonant with the people that are part of my social media group, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I use them differently. So, like, for instance, um, there was a voting issue where some of the um, voting locations in East Austin were opening at 11 instead of 7 a.m. And I'm like, I went to vote. I'm sitting there. I'm like, where's... Where's, where's the polls, you know? I mean, yeah. people aren't here. It was a big deal. It was a big deal because I'm thinking, you know, it's a working class neighborhood. People don't come home for lunch. No. And if they do come home at 6 o'clock, you're caught, caught in Austin gridlock traffic. Mm-hmm. So we're losing votes. And even if it's one vote, that's one vote too many. So I thought, well, you know, what can we do? And um, I, I basically used my social media footprint to reach out to as many people in Austin as I could. Um, I didn't. I didn't filter. I just said, this is for everybody. If, but I did say, if you live in Austin and if you care about the community, please read. Using my advertising call to action skills. Well, you know? I did call. It <laughs> yeah. worked. It worked. It yeah. worked. And, and the Statesman wrote about it, didn't it? The Statesman wrote about yeah. it and a couple of the news stations picked it yeah. up. And, um, you know, I got calls from different people. But, you know, the hardest part at that point was, like, how do you get people to get behind that mm-hmm. because you have to make it relevant to them and what i told people on social media was without having all the information and i'll be honest i didn't have all the information at the time but then again everybody that i called all these different government offices they didn't have gave, them either they didn't have the answer yeah. and they couldn't tell me where the problem existed so i thought okay well then there's no time to waste here we're losing mm-hmm. votes so i put it on my social media and i said mm-hmm. i can't find the answer to this there's a problem and let me tell you why it's important to you because we've historically been a disenfranchised community in the long ago past and this smells of really poor politics the fact that only in east austin you can't vote until 11 o'clock versus everywhere else in the entire county you can vote at 7 a.m mm-hmm. and and it woke up a lot of people mm-hmm. uh people that were concerned because they said even if i don't vote they're they're not letting me vote. Yeah, it's hindrance. And it became yeah, and it became to them very personal. So people got up and they I asked them to call, you know, their city council member, I asked them to call their county commissioners, I, you know, call the mayor's office, call, you know, um, at the time the county clerk, and they did. Uh, I think my post got shared 250 times and um, yeah, it's in a small little community on my little page. And so um, when something like that starts to take off a, a life of its own, people listen and uh, and that the point was not really even to get the city or the county to listen it was to let people understand that we've got a problem guys mm-hmm. so start making calls and help me get the answer and they did what it makes even just voting more important right because when yeah. the rights start getting taken away or when things start becoming a little bit more difficult for a certain community and you're a part of that community it means more and it makes you want to prize it and take care of it and actually do it yeah and in retrospect i mean just to be fair um, I don't know if it was the city or the county that made the mistake, but they, it, it was a mistake. It from, was a mistake. You know, yeah. that, that they were supposed to open at 7, and somewhere along the way that was not communicated to the right people. So there was a mistake made. But here's the deal. Had nobody spoken up, then would we have would have, those votes wouldn't have come out, and that would have affected a lot of local elections. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I think it's important that at least people now will look. Mm-hmm. The moment that they you know, know it's voting time, they're going to look for it. So those same people that maybe didn't care before now care. You've given them something to care about. And that's what the advocacy that we talked about earlier, we have to advocate for kind of our own communities. And when I say our own communities, that just meant East Austin for me mm-hmm. at the time. Which, probably a fourth of your 
cousins yes yes <laughs> representing that's just one that's just one family email you know 2000 <laughs> yeah how many people in your family here in Austin well you know I used to think that that maybe the numbers were made up honestly I was like ah oh, that number can't be right but apparently it's it actually has been documented mm-hmm. it's like 3200 wow uh, in the Austin area and it's that's like if if I'm married to my wife and mm-hmm. she's not blood uh, the fact she marries in she's not a family member yeah so um, I've heard because no. Tony our guy Oh yeah. Who the Home Depot person recommended Tony to me, and then he's married, and he's very proud of that. He was married yeah, to Limon. Yeah, Limon's <laughs> my cousin. Yeah, now we have a lot of cousins, yeah. and it's it's fun. It's fun because you know it's you. It's a great network to have of, of people that from all walks of life mm-hmm. that can you know be there when you need them, and uh, and it's just fun when we have parties too. Is and I've been. It is fun. Is there a responsibility? We've joked about being like um, the cousins that went away or the cousins that have seen a little bit more, have been exposed to a little bit more. Is there a different sense of responsibility being being that member in the family? You know, it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Um, I do think that there's a sense of responsibility that you put on yourself. And then I think there's a sense of pressure sometimes, whether it's you thinking about it or, or somebody making a little comment that mm-hmm. everything is is magnified. So if they say, well, man, if, you know, I had a cousin tell me, well, you know, um, somebody needs to run for this office because you're not, you, you know, you haven't run for anything. And there's like an inherent pressure, like, wait a minute, should I be? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, is, are, are people upset that, that in my family that I haven't? And I thought to myself, no, I should do something because I want to do it. Yeah. And because I think it's the right time to do it. So, and I'm using that as an example, but, you know, it might be, you know, uh, I have an uncle who's very involved in anything you can think of um, over a course of maybe 30, 40 years. I mean, he's a true community advocate and, and uh, I wouldn't say activist. He's more of a community leader and uh, an organizer. And and he's great. I mean, he's been involved in so many. This is my Uncle Johnny, my dad's brother. I mean, he's been and he advocates Virgil. for affordable housing. Yeah, Virgil's my dad crush. Yeah, that's her dad crush. <laughs> <laughs> Very S- handsome. The man. Silver Fox, Silver Fox. Silver you know. Fox. Yeah, that's right. With the ranch. Yeah, yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, you know, but I look at my Uncle Johnny and I think, you know, he stepped up mm-hmm. and he spoke for the community and he still continues to do so. So I've looked up to him and said, oh, that's, you know, but again, he did that because he wanted to. And he felt that, like, it was something that he could help a lot of people doing, right? And yeah. for me, it's like, well, I can step up or I can step out. And, it's easy to step out, especially when you have a, a job that's pulling you away a lot of hours, mm-hmm. or if you might be married, have kids. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, again, if not us, then who? Yeah. So I have learned to compartmentalize my life. I was just having this conversation with a former client, and he said, hey, you know, what are you doing here in Austin? I said, I live in two cities. I work on arguably one of the largest accounts in the country, which you know, is crazy busy, but I'm, I compartmentalize time to be involved in my community. And I compartmentalize time to spend time with my girlfriend. I compartmentalize time. Well, that's that's more than compartmentalize. It's like a big part of my life. But I compartmentalize time to do all the things that are important to me. Mm-hmm. And you just have to make it happen. Make it work. You have to make it work. Yeah. Gosh, and I only feel pressure to speak at funerals because supposedly, like, I'm the person that's going to say something, right? Yeah, so, no, go up and say yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I represent family emotion, but I wouldn't know what to do if I had 2,000-plus family members in a community that was traditionally marginalized and I would feel the responsibility to, to show up and, and say something or stand up. You know what I feel the responsibility to do and I had this conversation again the other day. I have a lot of conversations with a lot of people about yeah. a lot of things. I don't I don't feel the, the responsibility to be the person that speaks for my family. I feel the responsibility to find multiple people in my family who can speak up for our family. Mm-hmm. So my Uncle Johnny has helped me in certain situations. We had another cousin Alex who was very involved in the community. He's, he's since passed away. But, um, you know, and we have other family members that are involved in different aspects mm-hmm. of, of whatever in Austin. And I think my responsibility is to go and find those individuals in the family. They can be adults or, or, or young teenagers mm-hmm. and say, you know, how do we get you more involved in something that you already enjoy? How do we put you at the forefront so that you're helping to progress not only our family, but our community? And so it's less about me than about us. And I'm trying to figure out how I find those people in my family. And the family's so big, right? Yeah, it's huge. So... I live between two of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so big. One of them is probably your neighbor. Yeah. Um, what would you say to an Eastside boy that hasn't gotten his college letter yet and doesn't know what he can do or doesn't know what's available to him? 
I gave this advice. Or a girl. I gave this advice to both a mm-hmm. young lady and a young man recently. And it's, it's kind of harsh. Um, but I know, I told them, I said, figure out what you want to do and go after it like nothing else, like nobody else's business. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't make it, nobody's going to care. And mm-hmm. I said, I don't care how smart you think you are, how savvy you think you are, how charming you think you are. If you don't make it, nobody's going to care. Because in a community where, where everybody is just trying to struggle to Survive, make it, yeah. then you know what? I'm not saying people don't care. People want to see you succeed. But if you choose to waste your talent, nobody's going to care. Or your time. Because what, what they're going to do is say, hey, you know what? We're all struggling. Yeah. So you know what? You wasted your chance. That's on you. And I said, so it becomes, it is, very, it has to be self-motivating. You have to get out there and you have to say, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to depend on anybody else's backing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be times when you need, you need to push and that's fine. But I'm saying, just don't assume that people are going to continue to be, you know, at your back saying, go, go, we need you to do this and beg you to do anything. You've got to self-motivate. And if you don't, nobody's going to care. You will just, flounder. you know, you will just flounder and don't. Don't waste talent. I mean, I've seen a lot of wasted talent and and uh, and friends and, and and individuals that I've come across in my life. And I think, wow, these are people that that could really do some amazing things. But it's got to be self motivating and something that they make their own choice to do. Yeah, and I, I think it personally, I think it depends on on kind of who raised you and how you were raised and what you see around you, because it's a motivator, or it's a detractor, and if you see that hard work pays off. Like, I don't, I don't know where our hustle comes from because it's a labor of love kind of to do your own thing. And you know this because you've done it. Like, it takes a lot of prayers and duct tape and hard work and behind the scenes and being convinced to get out of your comfort zone. So I don't, I think it depends on that network. Like, obviously, you're very close to your family and you're very motivated by the connection that your family brings. But not everybody's blessed with that. Yeah. And so I kind of, I guess my, my take on that is, is, depending on where they're at and their process and where they're at in their family and what they've been exposed to. It's like either they have that little fire or spark or they don't. I think they can get it. I think anyone can, but I, I feel like it's a lot more than sometimes than self-motivation. I, I agree with you on part of it. Yeah. I think there are, I don't think you need like a 3,200 person family. No. You've got one sister that's super supportive of you. You probably yeah. have more actually than yeah. your mom and your dad. But But I think if you have a good network, whether it's one person or whether yeah. it's four or five people that can, at any given point in time, one person is going to be more your emotional support. One's yeah. going to be more your physical support, financial support in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have find that, that one cousin, yeah, just find that one cousin <laughs> that can give you all of them. And if you are that yeah. person and you don't have cousins, be that yeah. cousin, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. because I feel like that's the responsibility. And if people don't have it, then you gotta, you gotta share. Well, and I was going to say, if you don't have it, then go find it because yeah. It may not be in your family. Not all of us were blessed to be born with, uh, you know, certain advantages. But um, one of the things I did as a young kid, and, and I, I always tell people this story. Uh, they say, well, how do you know, you know, Mayor Gus Garcia? How do you mm-hmm. know Juan Portillo, who used to own Tremex Travel? And I was like, mm-hmm. you know what? As a 12-year-old kid, in one case, I think I was 13, I went up to Gus Garcia and I said, hey, man, can you give me a job? And he looked at me like, who are you? <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm like... Uh, you know, I go to this school and I was in this program and You're like, I'm and, the fancy cousin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> like, I, I need a job, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, but I mean like I looked for people like Juan Portillo yeah. when I was fifteen and I said, How do I how do I do what you're doing? Yeah. He was a successful uh owner uh he and his wife of a travel agency at the time, which was one of the largest in the in the country, called Tramix Travel, and I thought, How do I become Juan Portillo? And I had no clue. Yeah. So I approached him, and he became one of the people that would say, "Hey, Limon, what are you doing? You know, where are you applying to school? You know, why are you doing this? Yeah. You know, are you taking honors courses? Like, and it wasn't often, but it was often enough. So that was the support I needed. Gus Garcia, yeah, Gus Garcia said, "Are you doing internships?" I'm like, "What's an internship?" He's yeah. like, "You're gonna do one." Gave me an internship, yeah. and um, and even now, I mean, uh, I mean, Monica Peraza, who we both know, I mean, you know, as an adult, she's like. Hey, you should get involved in this. Yeah. Do you know this person? Have you talked to this it's person? It's like being sponsored to it's some like, extent. Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm a successful person. I've done well, but but it's Look. someone that looks out for you and says, mm-hmm. "Hey, you know what? I know you got your own thing going, but have you thought about this?" And so um, sometimes they seek you, and sometimes you have to seek them. 
Well, and as a beneficiary, you seeking me out and kind of bringing, I do credit you for bringing me back home. You've always been that person. Go to Texas. Me. Yeah, go Texas. You belong back in Austin, kid. Right. Um, but I think you've done that. I think you've consistently shown that that's the responsibility and opportunity, not, not necessarily because of the communities that we come from, but it's just the way to be. So yeah. thanks. Thanks for talking about it and being uh-huh. available. No, thank you for having me. And I know I talk a lot, so sorry, whoever's listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can go on and on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this is important. And I feel like the, more, the only thing we want to do is, is share people's stories in a way yeah. that kind of lights, lights um, a fire or sparks an interest or lets someone else know, here's how it happens or here's what you can do. There was something that uh, our mutual friend Raquel posted yesterday about Cory Booker. Did you read it? I did. And I, yeah, I did. I, I, I liked it. I'm looking Instagram. to see if I can find it because I thought it was really cool what she posted here. This right here. And she said, um, here's what Cory Booker said. He gave some nuggets of wisdom. He said, focus on your purpose, not your position. Mm-hmm. Love says, I see you. Don't be silent. Do something. And just be a good human. Yeah, that's it. Pretty simple philosophy to live by. So. Well, thanks for being a good human. Yeah. Thank you guys for being good humans (laughs) and for having me here. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye, guys.